Hey everybody, welcome back to Studio HFL. I'm Larry Powell, your host for this podcast. I'm glad you're back for another interview. I'd like to let you know that this podcast is made possible by the generous support of my new co-sponsor, Messina Covers. David and Erica design and deliver both high-quality customer service and products, both standard and custom. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And Messina is spelled M-E-S-S-I-N-A-C-O-V-E-R-S. They offer their support through Patreon. Patreon is a funding platform where you can offer your financial support to this podcast, and your help will go towards hosting, production, and marketing fees. There are several tiers of support offered, and you can check out how you'd like to support this podcast at www.patreon.com slash studiohfl, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can also offer support by providing comments and a rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive news regarding interviews, new guests, access to Studio HFL merchandise, please subscribe to the newsletter by going to www.powellmusic.net and click on the subscribe to newsletter link. And of course, Powell Music, P-O-W-E-L-L-M-U-S-I-C dot net. And now, on with the interview. I'll put an... <laughs> Explicit rating on I'm trying it. Trying to make but, it G-rated, okay. Um, hey, so far so good. I haven't had to bleep anybody out or uh, or make. Although there's a first time for everything. In fact, uh, this is a first. Uh, you're the first trombonist really? that I will have interviewed. I interviewed right. Darren last week, and and he was the first non-trumpet player sure that, that I great. had interviewed. Oh, it was awkward. No, no, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. Okay. But, you know, I mean, what right. what started out to be an all, I don't know that I ever just said this only going to be trumpet players, right. but that's kind of where I started. Sure. And uh, I was getting right. excited when I saw the Trombone Festival or Trombone Federation. The festival. Oh, it is festival. Yeah. ITF mm-hmm. was going to be right outside my back door this, uh, this summer. And I thought, man, I'm going to get a bunch of interviews up there. Jim Nova, Christopher Bill, maybe, you know, some of those guys. And then the ITG conference is the same week. Is it really? So I'm oh. going to miss, you know, miss. Uh, where's, the, where's the ITG? Miami. In the middle of July. Great planning, huh? It's going to well, be. Well, Muncie's not exactly the hot spot of the, of the Midwest, but. But it's not going to be hot. It won't be like that. It's a great facility. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, hey. Man, it's attracting a huge crowd. I, I looked at uh, the website, and I mean, Chris has done a great job of putting that stuff together, but holy cow, the lineup. I looked at the schedule the other day, mm-hmm. um, other than having like some prelude ensembles or guest ensembles mm-hmm. scheduled, it looks like it's pretty set. It's robust. Yeah. There's a lot of great people yeah. coming. It'll be fun. So um, I'm here with uh, Blake Schlabach. 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 Either way, it's fine. What is it? I always say Schlabach. Schlabach. Yeah. I'm here with Blake Schlabach. Uh, technically, second trombone with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra, but uh, in lieu of uh, vacancies and that sort of thing, you're acting principal trombone and the personnel manager. Is that right? It's true. But if you want to be technical, my title is actually assistant principal trombone. Oh, didn't so know that. So I am now acting. And yes, I am the orchestra's personnel manager. How long you been doing? Uh, let's let's talk about the personnel side first. How long you been doing personnel? Oh, let's see. My math is terrible, but I think. Wait a minute. And you're a personnel manager? Yeah. Well, <laughs> we have computers for these things, right? You don't have to rely on my yeah. my brain. Okay. Uh, I think it was uh, 2002. So what is that math? Oh wow, 16 years, 17. Yeah, right? that sounds right. And I was assistant personnel manager 10 years before that. So I've kind of been in the the operations side of the of the company for. 26 years, I guess. Uh, I'm going to adjust your level here just very quickly. I don't want to be missing any of this. This liquid gold here that we're, we've got. Say a little bit something else. Uh, anything. Um, we were talking about... Um, okay, yeah, we're good. Somebody. I don't remember who we were talking about. But... Oh, Arturo Sandoval. That's who we were talking about. <laughs> no, he does enough talking about himself, and nobody else needs to... And I am definitely going to edit that out, because I don't need to alienate alienate anybody so okay so back to the personnel side of thing um 
the assistant personnel manager, that's kind of dealing with uh, all the subs, right? Isn't that sure. kind of the focus there? Yeah. What? Uh, so Bennett Cranford's uh, the assistant personnel manager, and we kind of divide up and conquer different tasks. So the assistant works through payroll mostly. He ha- hires almost all of the subs uh, for the orchestra. And as you know now, that's not just people that come in when they're ill or on vacation. We have a lot of string players that we augment our string section with mm-hmm. on a weekly basis. So it's a big job. It takes a lot of, um, I call it learned uh, artistic or musical talent because mm-hmm. when you start hiring people, you want to know if, is that person good? <laughs> Should I be really calling them? Right. So you learn yeah. all that stuff quickly and uh, you make friends across the musical community with, mm-hmm. you don't just stick with whatever your instrument comfort zone is. You get to, you, you mm-hmm. branch out and you learn mm-hmm. what everybody does. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's actually fascinating. So you enjoy what you're doing with the personnel side. Oh yeah. I love it. It's great. What I mean, is it about brass players that seem, we seem to be drawn to that administrative uh, task or, or aspect of, of orchestras and bands? Yeah. I mean, that's a, I would say that most people will probably have a different answer, but I think the core of it or the crux of the, of that, uh, like is we're gregarious. We like to be around people. We like to engage in conversation. Mm -hmm. We're curious people. We want to know what's going on. And, um, I think that part of our personality as a, as a brass player allows us to branch out, make some new friends, inquire about what's happening. And, uh, and then hopefully people will feel like they can come to you with things, whatever issues there are. Do you get a lot, a lot of issues? I'm not asking oh, sure. you to, you know, throw anybody under the bus or uh, spill the beans on something. But No, it's, it's fine. Um, the way I look at it is, you know, you have your own personal life that you try to manage with all the things you do in your business side of your life. And then you multiply that by about 75 people. And they tend to intersect a lot. <laughs> and it's just, it's just part of, uh, you know doing business while you're trying to have a family at the same time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to be able to manage all of those things uh, at the same time, and sometimes we get stuck, and mm-hmm. that's fine. That's the way life is. Mm-hmm. So we just take it one thing at a time. So now I'm kind of curious, and I've wondered about this a lot. I've seen your office, your personnel manager office, and I've seen your trombone or trombones sitting in there. Do you ever get a chance to pick up the horn and uh, – and practice, or is it just pretty much personnel work when you're in there? I try to – I force myself to take breaks. I'm not a – I think when I concentrate, it's like my musical side of my brain allows me to focus intensely for short periods of time. So if we're going to play – you know, we're going to play a Mahler symphony, it might be 75 minutes long. So, you know, we have to focus really intensely – and then we can go off stage and decompress a little bit. Mm-hmm. When I work at my computer, I do the same thing. I, I try to focus on a task until I get it done, but in short bursts. Then I'll walk out of the office, and if, if I have some time to myself, I'll grab one of my horns, and I'll go on stage. I'll go in the basement. I'll play some etudes or just work on little things. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big believer in practicing. If you have five really great minutes to yourself, <laughs> That's five minutes is really valuable because you might not, at least I may not get another five minutes. It could be four hours or it could be four days. So I was not like that years ago, but I've learned to compartmentalize and take advantage of little, I call it found time, little mm-hmm. little bits of found time where you can be by yourself and, and work on something very, very specific. Mm-hmm. So, and actually for my schedule, it works great now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find that I'm actually have the horn in my face probably more than I did 20 years ago just for oh. that very reason wow I can't speak to the amount of time I'm having on my face but I know mm-hmm. that I pick it up I'll grab uh, just grab a quick study book or do something from memory mm-hmm. work on articulation for five ten minutes mm-hmm. go back in and start get back to the PC and start working again so okay so let's jump over we'll leave personnel alone for a little bit and go over to the uh, trombone side how long you been in the orchestra playing trombone I sure I started uh, September of 1982, so that's like 36 years I think. Wow. Um, and I look at the I look at the we think about it as a career, a uh, playing career, and how 
not only has my playing changed, but really the how the orchestra's changed over that uh, almost four decades. Uh, when I started, I think we were 44 <laughs> or 46 weeks uh, during the year, so mm-hmm. we had a lot of summer to find something to do uh, other than you know playing in an ensemble. And you know now we're we're basically working. It's a, we consider ourselves a 52 week orchestra. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're actually playing almost 43 weeks every season. There's some downtime built into the schedule around mm-hmm. holidays and things, but it's rigorous. It's rigorous. The mm-hmm. amount of repertoire that we play is, um, I find it, uh, not only is it engaging, but there's a lot of stuff to learn. Um, one of the things that the ISO prides itself on is we do lots of classical repertoire and we do lots of pops repertoire, and it's all mixed and it, it kind of... Um, co-mingles itself throughout the season so mm-hmm. we don't have a winter season that's all classical and a summer season that's all pops or commercial mm-hmm. nope it's all mixed up and um there's just a lot of stuff to learn mm-hmm. so i know you've played second and first uh, you ever played any of the bass trombone uh um, in an in an in an emergency emergency yeah i remember once doing uh what was we played the the Haydn creation once and uh my former stand partner john bart got sick at the very like an hour before the concert and uh, we couldn't find a bass trombone player (laughs) excuse me so i mean i played the piece enough times that i thought okay i can get through this (laughs) but that's for emergencies only (laughs) i'm a tenor trombone player yeah yeah it's not like trumpet players right who you know we play flugel and b flat c d e flat piccolo and cornet and and these days now you might even include natural trumpet in the mix i mean as a trombone player you're uh you're pretty much dedicated to either tenor or bass right i think that's how most of us work um you know there are there there are guys and gals that can can do both and do it really well i'm just not that person Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. i tried in college to bridge that gap because i thought i wanted to be able to be able to do any kind of work Mm -hmm. and uh, i worked fairly diligently on uh, bass trombone repertoire for about 18 months and you know I just kind of knew that it was really not in the cards for me and, and, and you know what I, I enjoy playing the tenor much more anyway so. sure well you sound great you know I remember hearing you I didn't know you at the time but I remember hearing the ISO when I first got to town in the late 80s and uh, Raymond Lepard was conducting at the time yep. and uh, who was the pops conductor back then uh, passed uh, away. Eric Kunzel. Yeah, uh, passed away what uh, half a dozen or so years ago, I Correct. guess. But yeah, uh, you know, man, the orchestra, and it's a very different animal these days. I mean, it's not that uh, classical, controlled sound. Not that you guys play out of control now. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it, uh, the orchestra sure, certainly sure. has uh, has changed. And uh, oh, it's a, it's a, you know, what's interesting is, um, you know, as a person throughout one's life you you find that you change and you do things differently or you look at things in a different way and uh an organization like an orchestra is the same way it it responds to people on the podium depending on who's sitting in all the chairs Hmm. and so it's not you're not going to get the same response uh now that we did 30 years ago and it's just you know everyone brings their collective experience uh to the band if you will and certain things mean certain things to certain people. It's their training. Whatever mm-hmm. training you have, you bring that experience. And then if you have a, re- if you have a really great uh, conductor on the podium, who I like to, I like to refer to them as uh, group therapists. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them are, are really adept at assessing whatever situation you're in with a repertoire and figuring out, okay, Here's where we are. I want to get over here. Mm-hmm. And then they figure out a way to do it mm-hmm. that actually is engaging, and it, it makes uh, everyone excited to get there. Mm-hmm. And then you have other people that just can't – They, you just kind of assume they have some kind of uh, blinders on, and they're going to tell you something, and they're really not that interested in, in what you have to say or <laughs> what you're playing, mm-hmm. as long as you're going to do it their way. <laughs> And most conductors are kind of a blend of those two examples, but it's really a blast when somebody hears something and and they make a quick assessment. Yeah. And then they start shaping it. Yeah. 
and you can kind of feel it and see it happening. Yeah. But it's it's really an engaging process because you know as brass players we sit sometimes we'll sit five minutes or fifteen minutes listening to the woodwinds or the strings work on something or mm-hmm. even if they're not working they're just playing when we're resting mm-hmm. and it's fun to watch and see the visual aspects of how they're trying to change it and then when they stop mm-hmm. and address the orchestra and ask them for certain changes mm-hmm. how everyone reacts to that I I've always been drawn to that aspect of uh, being in a rehearsal again I'd re- I, if I had my druthers I'd play only concerts <laughs> right and, and I'm at that point in my life yeah, where concerts yeah. are very exciting however um, rehearsals obviously are very uh, they're necessary and um, and for lots of reasons but that you can really get a lot of uh, information and learn a lot about people in general by being in a rehearsal situation mm-hmm. if you pay attention mm-hmm and that's the key. If you pay attention, mm-hmm. not only when you're working, but when someone else is working, mm-hmm. you need to stay engaged. Mm-hmm. The rehearsal's two and a half hours. You need to be engaged for two and a half hours, my friends. Yeah, it it can be a long haul. Um, oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and not just the conductor, but you know, if you've got a section that's uh, maybe not ever not everybody's clicking, that can that can stretch things out too. Now, saying that. I don't know that there's been a time where I've heard the ISO or, or been on stage with you that things haven't clicked. I mean, it's always seemed like, man, this, this is a yeah. lot of fun. You know, you sit down and it's easy to play and the attitude. That's one thing. And I mentioned this to Conrad when I uh, interviewed him was the vibe, the attitude with the ISO is remarkable. It's just everybody gets along. Well, I know there's drama, right? I mean, <laughs> but there's you know, always drama, Larry. Come on, <laughs> I, I know, I know. But you know, I think it's it's very unique and special for the ISO. It's one of those places where you can go and and everybody just seems to really enjoy what they're doing, and everybody's getting along on stage and off stage, and uh, a lot of respect, uh, I think, uh, for their for colleagues. I agree with you. I mean, I really enjoy. Um, you know, the vibe, as you say, is very collegial. And it's actually fun. Mm-hmm. It's changed a lot over the last 30 years. It really has. And, again, you it's the experiences that people bring to the stage and how they interact with their colleagues that mm-hmm. makes it a great vibe and makes it fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm having a blast in the brass section. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, everybody sounds really great. And there, there's some super talented people yeah. in the brass section. I yeah. mean, of course, in the whole orchestra, but... Because we work together mm-hmm. so closely, it's really fun when somebody says, you know what, in this particular measure, we're doing this unison thing, articulation-wise, we need to be on the same page with it. I'm going to do it like this. If it, it, let's just try that and see if that works out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the fact that we're, we've gotten to that point where we talk about these things occasionally. We don't talk about them all the time because mm-hmm. a lot of times now the expectation is, hey, did you hear what the trumpets are doing here? Let's match that. And it, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. when you start communicating on that level, then not only is it faster, but it's uh, there's so much satisfaction when you play like that. You don't have to legislate every certain mm-hmm. thing because mm-hmm. everybody's got their radar on, they're engaged in the rehearsal, and they're hearing they're mm-hmm. hearing their colleagues. Mm-hmm. And if there's a question, fine, just ask it. Yeah, It's, it's all okay. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about the diversity in age. Uh, in the orchestra, which seems to be more now uh, than than I can remember. Um, but you just, and I was going to say you just lost a colleague, but you didn't lose a colleague. Uh, he retired. <laughs> Jim Beckel retired after yes. uh, 49 seasons. Is yeah, that Jim correct? was in the orchestra for 49 seasons. That's unbelievable. That's amazing. There's only and one other person that's been longer than that. Who was that? It was Renato Puccini, who was a former concertmaster oh. and first violinist. Patch. Patch, and he had put in 50 years. Wow. So, I mean, but uh, let's face it, anything over 25 seems miraculous anymore because it's it's a, it's a huge commitment. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. It just is. You know, it's funny. Uh, of course, Jim uh, retired, but, I mean, he's not retired. I, I actually saw him with the Evansville Philharmonic. He was had, had one of his pieces being played, and he was yep. there to, uh, to kind of oversee that. And he was with Boston, uh, what, just a just few recently, weeks ago? Just a couple weeks ago, yeah. And... Uh, you know, it's. Uh, I think now he's really getting to enjoy a whole different aspect of 
of things. He's a fabulous musician and one of the nicest guys. And I think, boy, you know, oh, that yeah. changes the dynamic too because oh, sure. uh, now, uh, well, you guys both led the section because, you know, you played principal uh, so often. Oh, and that reminds me of one of my favorite stories. The Uh-oh. orchestra for the longest time had an 8 p.m. start. Oh, for concerts. For concerts. Oh, yeah, we've changed all this stuff. And I remember, I was actually playing with you guys. I was doing an offstage part. Uh, I was playing with you guys one night. I think it was the first time you'd done a 7.30 start. Okay. I was downstairs in the basement, all the practice rooms. And Jim Beckel was down there, and uh, I think David Bellman, and a couple of violinists. And you hear the tuning note. (laughs) And Valero was the first thing on the program. And I remember, of course, uh, I was stood down there and listened, and Jim's just like, well, I guess I missed that. <laughs> but you, you, I don't know if you scooted over, but you played the, the first part. I think I remember this, yeah. Uh, from <laughs> that concert. You know, I mean, it kind of took a few people by surprise, but uh, <laughs> it's a great story. I mean, the, the one thing that's fascinating about personnel is things happen. And it's funny because you look at it from, we'll just say you look at it from behind the curtain where we are. And then you look at it from how the audience perceives it. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, honestly, the, the phrase that, you know, the show must go on, you can't delay. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can get a minute or two, but you can't wait 30 minutes or – you just can't. There's just – it's not mm-hmm. possible. Mm-hmm. So you have to figure out how to make do with what you have. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember sitting on stage thinking, like, I wonder where Jim is. <laughs> And then it's like, well, it doesn't matter. We're just going to start. We have to go. And we have to go. So I'm like, okay. I don't think I even moved. I just sat there and I just played the solo. Right. And uh, and then he showed up a little bit later. And I thought, oh, look, there you are. <laughs> kind of missed you in that last piece. <laughs> but uh, stuff like this happens. Sure. Um, it happens in every job. It's just that most people in the office don't notice these things because there's no public watching you. Right. So at least in right. our case, we everything that we do that – makes news is yeah. in front of uh, a group of people that are they're there to see what we do <laughs> so yeah things happen yeah it's okay yeah. yeah so um let's talk a little bit about uh what you do as if personnel manager and full-time trombonists aren't enough uh you do a lot on the side with teaching uh yep. right here at the university of indianapolis we're uh, both adjunct uh, faculty on the brass mm-hmm. for the brass uh, but you do a lot of fill-ins for sabbaticals down at IU and other places, I would imagine. Uh, talk a little bit about where you've done those things and sure. uh, maybe some of the experiences there. Well, I've actually I – mean, I probably don't do it a lot, but I have – I've done uh, – I've taught for Carl Lenthe at uh, Indiana University at the Jacob School twice now mm-hmm. uh, on his sabbaticals. And frankly, for me, I, I would think this would – probably be similar to other people's experiences. But when you go down and you get an experience teaching 10, 15, or 20 students, whether they're undergrads, masters, or doctoral students, you get exposed to something that we don't normally get to expose to every day. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when you go to the Jacob School, you know, they're one of the premier institutions uh, in the Midwest, of course, but let's just say probably in the world, when you gather all of the talent that they have on their faculty, that draws a huge, hugely talented uh, Mm -hmm. musical crowd to their institution, if you will. And when you put yourself in the middle of that, uh, the first thing that you notice is how much fun it is. (laughs) Because, you know, all of the students bring these ideas and uh, just their thoughts about playing particular things or even... When you can have a discussion with you know one of the kids and have a cup of coffee about, let's talk about the Tomasi trombone concerto just you know for fifteen minutes, mm-hmm. and it's a blast because mm-hmm. you know what their part of their training is to share what they've already learned, but what they'd like to learn, not only with um, the professors but also with their other student colleagues. Mm-hmm. Because I the other thing that I just absolutely love about this whole uh, idea of having a large uh, music school like the Jacob School is you've got so many undergrads and then the the tier of the masters and the, the doctoral of course are smaller but when you put all that together you have this community that is really able to share their body of work with each other mm-hmm. and they feel good about that mm-hmm. I would say when when I was in college 
course, I went to DePaul University, which is much smaller. But I think uh, culturally, we were much less adept or even uh, much less inclined to share what we were doing with others. Mm. And I'm not exactly sure what the, what the lack of motivation was uh, then, but I think the, the younger generations are – they share everything they do. Hey, we're going to go for lunch. What are we going to do after we're done with uh, trombone choir rehearsal? Let's go mm-hmm. do something. And they're just uh, – they're better at it, and they're very comfortable with it. And mm-hmm. I like that environment uh, You know, for me to go down and work with them exposes me to some new things that I might not have seen in the last five or ten years. Mm. And I find that really – it's very vital to me because I feel energized by their, uh, their eagerness, uh, their spirit, uh, all of the things that they bring – that they seem to have an abundance mm-hmm. that sometimes we lack when we go get up and every day and go to work and we do this over and over, right? Mm-hmm. We kind of it kind of dulls the the sensation sometimes. But when you get into that situation, you realize that hey, everything's going to be great. <laughs> they're all super focused on what it is that mm-hmm. they want to do, and they're going to get there. Mm-hmm. So I feel I feel jazzed about that. Mm-hmm. I, I just love that whole that whole vibe and. Uh, we go to uh, I'll teach a master class down there with some of the either the studio or, or the all the undergrads and there's always discussion afterward there might be let's go get a pizza or something afterward and either continue the conversation or talk about something else mm-hmm. whatever they're whatever they're working on or mm-hmm. what's going on um, it's a great environment uh, it's a great learning environment mm-hmm. and I think you could be anyone can take advantage of that at any age so and I know that graduate program, uh, is vital to what you're talking about because a school that just has an undergraduate program you don't have that I mean the professors might be fantastic but you you mentioned that extra layer yes uh, you know but you and and there's some added experience that's already closer in age to the undergrads and so the communication might be easier uh, between them and then you talk about this eagerness to share uh, they might not feel the in, the uh, intimidation or feel inhibited to talk to uh, masters and doctoral students the way they might be inhibited in talking to the professor. No, I think you're exactly right because I really believe that, uh, and I've seen this in practice. It's not a theory for me. Um, that extra layer is a resource mm-hmm. for the undergrads, mm-hmm. and it's. I mean, it's anytime you've got something that's got three or four years of experience on top of whatever. Uh, learning they've already done mm-hmm. that adds a whole nother level of uh, comfort zone the age proximity takes away another barrier mm-hmm. and you know when you're when you're there with your colleagues and friends you basically all look the same it doesn't matter <laughs> if you're 19 right. or you're 23 right it's pretty much the same but it's that extra layer of uh, learning that becomes a huge resource mm-hmm. and uh it's awesome just to even go to a recital and, and sit with, sit with a, a doctoral student and sit with, a, sit with mm-hmm. four or five undergrads, mm-hmm. and just where they are and what what they're what are they listening for and what are they trying to get out of this experience? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. It really is. Juxtaposed with uh, teaching here at UND, a small liberal arts. In fact, we probably have as many majors as IU has trombone players. Right, I mean, it's yeah, it could be right. I yeah, mean, we've got about one hundred and five, hundred and ten majors, um, right? And I don't know how many trombone players there are. Well, there's there. less than that. There's probably sixty. Yeah, fifty to still 60. too many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, okay, so maybe com- compare, contrast a little bit what it's like uh, teaching at a at a smaller school. I think the the biggest difference to me is at every small school um, that I've had experience with, whether it's DePaul or Butler, uh, UND, um, what's some of the other, uh, Franklin, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. There's always really talented kids. I think the biggest difference, though, is the smaller schools are more traditionally focused on a classical liberal arts type of education. So I think what happens is you get more... Students are generally looking for a more well-rounded experience from an educational perspective. Whereas if you're going, if you're going to be a performance major at the Jacobs School, that's about the only thing 
that's driving you. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're going to still take all of the music courses that, that you're going to take at UIndy. You're going to take class piano if you mm-hmm. don't play it. Mm-hmm. You're going to take music theory. You're going to take music history. But you might not take some of the other ancillary courses, like I want to take an art history course mm-hmm. or I want to take uh, some other thing that's uh, It's more of a conservatory, uh, conservatory approach. Right? It is, it is. And so you tend to get... Um, the kids that are more hyper focused on their performance, going to a school like uh, the JSOM or to Juilliard, mm-hmm. or more conservatory uh, driven, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the thing, the other thing that I that I've noticed is, you're going to find there's cream of the crop at every every institution you go to. Mm-hmm. It's just proportional in how many there mm-hmm. are, and and that's really the difference. Um, can you get a good education at at any of these schools, absolutely, you really can. Well, it, and honestly, it always comes down to the student. I mean, the, the yeah. quality of education really—it comes down to what the student is going to make of it. You know, you might yep. have a crappy professor here and there, but by and large, you know, I think the faculty's pretty pretty well doing their job. I I agree with that. And um, again, some students need more motivation to do things than others. It doesn't matter if it's a... Oh, so you know my history, right? <laughs> right. It really doesn't matter, though, if you're if you're at UND or you're at IU. Um, you find all of the same subsets of students and faculty. Mm-hmm. They're just in different proportions. Mm-hmm. It's really, I think it's well, really true. Well, you know, and, I, and I've said this on previous podcasts and, and told others, and it's, it's true. I started out at University of Kentucky, you know, a large school. Mm-hmm. It was not for me. I actually finished my degree here at UND, and this is where I belonged. You know that, yeah. the, and so there. That's why I encourage incoming students to make a campus visit to every school that they're going to apply for, and see is this going to be a good fit, and mm-hmm. to get a sample lesson with a professor. Do you want to spend the next four years with, with me? And I want to know: Do I want to spend <laughs> the next four right. years with you? Exactly. Uh, and maybe if it, it's not a good fit, I can say, you know what. Why don't you try Ball State? Why don't you try IU? Why don't you? Yes. Welcome to the middle of the episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is brought to you with the support of Messina Covers. They offer some standard and custom designs of trumpet bags, mouthpiece pouches, and more. And their customer service is excellent. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And now, back to the interview. One, you know, one of the things that, so I've noticed this, uh, part of it's from, I've had a couple of uh, trial runs at the college university thing recently because our daughter Emma is going to graduate from Luther College in Iowa next week. Mm-hmm. But our son Evan is going to be a senior at North Central High School. So we've made a lot of college visits in the last 12 months. And m- I would say nine out of 10 places that we've visited, they really st- have started to emphasize Take a tour. Fit is mm. probably, possibly more important than any of the other things that you're looking at, whether mm. it's a student's SAT scores or ACT scores, where the college or university is located, mm-hmm. you know, what's the diversity level of the student body or the faculty. The fit is what they're really emphasizing. And I think once you find a place that feels like I feel home here, you can learn there. Mm-hmm. And as you already said, I can't think of a place that would not provide a great education if you're plugged in to the, mm-hmm. whatever programs they have right. and, uh, and you feel motivated because of the place. Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to get a good education. You mm-hmm. are. Because then you're going to put that, that onus is going to be on each student to do well mm-hmm. because they want to do well. So I think that that's just it's it's a huge revelation in education, even though it's we've probably known this for decades. Right? Sure. Yeah. You went to DePaul. I did. Greencastle, not DePaul, Chicago, but DePaul, Greencastle. Mm-hmm. Um, how'd you end up there? Well, that's a that's actually a, it's a it's an interesting question. <clears throat> it's it's kind of simple. It, it was in my case, it was kind of economically driven. Um, when I was a junior. So we did the same thing that almost everybody does. If you're in music, you go to these places that you're interested in. You take an audition, look at the school, meet with uh, who the 
either the adjunct or full-time professors on your instrument. Mm -hmm. And then once you've done that, you start applying, you make sure that you can actually get into these schools, mm -hmm. right? So I visited um, University of Rochester, which is the Eastman School of Music. Went to University of Michigan. Uh, where else did I go? DePauw, of course. Indiana University. And there was probably some other school in there. I just can't remember what it was now. Mm -hmm. So obviously it didn't leave an impression on me. <laughs> but um, so I did all of that. And when I auditioned for places, one of the things that was important is trying to find a place that was, you know, I grew up in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. None of those places are actually located in Ohio. Oh, the other place was Ohio State University. Now I remember. Okay. So, um, which meant out-of-state tuition, mm -hmm. expensive. Mm -hmm. So there had to be some economic incentive uh, coming my way. I did get a full-ride scholarship at DePauw. I did get a very nice uh, scholarship package to go to Eastman. It just wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. And I loved going to uh, Rochester. John Marcellus was teaching there. I felt very at home there. Mm -hmm. And that's a completely different vibe than DePaul, of course. <laughs> but I also took a couple lessons with Jim Beckel, and I just felt really at home with what he had to say about the instrument to me. And so when I put all that together, that just, it was just a great, we go back to it was a great fit. Mm -hmm. I never thought I'd see myself in a smaller school, but I really liked the, uh, the, the vibe of the student relationship to the faculty mm -hmm. in Greencastle. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just really adored studying with Jim because mm -hmm. he was exactly what I needed at the time mm -hmm. coming out of high school. Somebody that was you know really, really, really uh, critical in analyzing my playing. Uh, and that's what I needed at the time. And so that's how I got there. So kids, what you see, what you've just heard is the <clears throat> right way to do this. Not the way I did it, Blake, which is... <laughs> I grew up a UK fan, All right. so that's where I'm going to go to school. Yeah. That's That way I can play in the pet band for all the basketball games and football games. Right. Oh, wait a minute. You have to go to class too? <laughs> oh, that's, uh, yeah, that's, you know, unique. that's unique, isn't it? So, yeah. you know, it was one of those where, and, you know, I was young and dumb. I didn't really understand at the time, but, uh, you know, I got my stuff together later on. But mm -hmm. uh, the way that you just described that, I mean, having the choice between Eastman and DePaul, and I don't knock DePaul at all because it's a fantastic school. Sure. But it's only because of the prestige that that Eastman has that I, you know, I say that. It's just what a great way to uh, illustrate campus visit and you and Jim hit it off. You know, and that's great. And obviously it worked. It worked out really well. And I, mean, I can relate uh, another story that fast forward uh, when our daughter decided to go to Luther College. We kind of approached the whole college visit the same way that I did when I was her age. She picked, we picked about seven or eight places to go. Mm -hmm. And you know, she went to all these places and found the four or five that she really, really wanted to apply to and did that. And by the time we got to the very end of the process, it became Luther College for me is the best fit. And ironically, turned out exactly the same as it did in my case. She she didn't get a full ride, but she got a very nice scholarship package to Luther. It was actually less to send her to Luther College than it was to go to Purdue. Wow. So, And she was actually super excited about going there because that was her place. Mm -hmm. These were her people. She mm -hmm. loved everything about it. And uh, so that process, I've seen it work twice mm -hmm. in our own family. So we're approaching it the same way with Evan. Mm -hmm. And he's... You know, he's much more, uh, He, of course, Emma's very uh, gregarious, and she'll talk about everything. Evan keeps all that stuff a little bit closer to himself, mm -hmm. but he's processing it. Mm -hmm. And he'll let us know at some point, you know what, I like this place because, and he'll say, I really like that class I went to at this particular university because mm -hmm. I felt like this, I could actually engage with the professor or the students were really helpful at explaining something mm -hmm. to me or giving me an experience that I didn't get. Wasn't he big into soccer? He still is. Is he getting any kind of soccer experience? Uh, uh, yes. Or a scholarship, rather? Well, we don't know that yet. Um, but one of the one of the very first criteria that we, we actually looked at was, all right, it's really hard to decide on going to a school if, you're, if you really don't have, if you know you're not going to be a trombone performance major, 
what is it that you want to get out of your college education? And the answer sometimes is, I don't know. And I think that's perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. So he's undecided in that, in that uh, particular idea of going to school. I don't know what I want yet. The next question was, can you see yourself going to a college or university that has no soccer program? And then he said, absolutely not. That would be terrible. <laughs> and so I said, okay, there's one thing. Uh -huh. I said, can you see yourself going to a college or university where you can't play in the band or the orchestra on your trombone? Uh -huh. He said, maybe. He said, uh -huh. I really, cause he said, I really like to play my instrument. I said, I don't want to, I'm not going to be a, a music major. But if I had the opportunity to play uh -huh. in the band or the pep band, or, you know, like you're talking about, he said, that would be great. I'd love that. So that's kind of on the list. Mm -hmm. It's not a must-have, but it's on the list. So mm -hmm. we're trying to approach it the same way. Mm -hmm. And I'd be curious to see in about mm, six, seven months what that outcome looks like. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of – that's a work in progress right now. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about your playing career. I mean, you've played, well, in 36 seasons with the ISO probably – is there anything that you haven't played? Anything of note? Uh, oh, golly. Well, there has not, to be. There has to be. And, and this has not been an orchestra <clears throat> necessarily known for doing the big Wagner uh, productions or sure. the Mahler pieces. Are there are there some of those that uh, that you'd like to get to? Well, I'd love, I mean, being, it's a selfish thing, but um, I would love to play principal trombone on Mahler three sometime. Uh -huh. I've never done it. Uh, and actually, as far as I can remember, in the 36 years that I've been here, I think we played Mahler three one time wow. since I've been here, which was honestly, even though I wasn't playing principal at the time, it was still exciting to do the work. Well, yeah. I mean, holy cow! Right? <laughs> this is the thing that why are we why have we been practicing this? You know, since Mahler wrote this. Well, listen to it once and you'll know because I mean, the opportunity to play this kind of repertoire is uh, it's just astounding to listen to the the way the trombone can literally tower over the orchestra as a complete solo voice. This doesn't happen that You know, I'll, I'll admit, uh, I used to think trumpet, and, you know, as a trumpet player, I, you know, drawn to Mahler, of course. Sure. But I first heard Mahler three played by, uh, it was a Cincinnati Symphony recording, and it's by somebody who also, I guess, had been a bass trombonist prior to this. Ooh. You're going to know the name probably before I will. But I listened to that recording, and it, exactly like you're describing, it's like I never knew. I mean, trombone, you're right. It towered over yeah. the entire orchestra. Yeah. And the, the playing was just spectacular. Oh. Well, but the writing, first of all, I mean, the just writing. the writing. You know, I mean, you, you, you can be a great player, but right. if you don't have decent stuff to play. Sure. <laughs> but the, it was just beautiful. And, of course, that's a tour de force for the whole brass section. Oh, it is. I mean, it really is. And it, most of the... Most of the Germanic composers, especially the Romantic ones, nobody writes for brass like Strauss or mm -hmm. Mahler, Wagner, Tchaikovsky, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, Are you a Brahms fan? I love Brahms. I just absolutely love everything that Brahms wrote. Mm -hmm. um, and part of the reason that I love that is not only do I like the way that he can write melody, which is very different. He can be very angular compared to some of the other composers, but he also orchestrates with a trombone um, with, I think, with perfection. Hmm. The way he, he always looks at the trombone section as a unit. We do, <coughs> excuse me, we do everything together with, within reason. Mm -hmm. And the, his interval spacing and how he um, writes uh, chordal passages is in my opinion it's just perfect for the instrument he always provides enough space that each voice can resonate you can pick the voices out but when they're in balance they have this gorgeous quality to it that mm -hmm. um you know i always think of um composers that really uh do well with choral works beethoven was very good at that but in some ways i think Brahms is even better at that uh, the, the the choral parts of the trombone parts of the Brahms Requiem seem simple, but when you actually play through them, mm -hmm. 
there is uh, there's a profound sense of um, beauty in them that is well, it's not replicated very often, and it's a, it's a thrilling thing to play. Mm-hmm. I also love playing virtually everything by Mozart because again, the <clears throat> if you flip backwards in time to get to the point where the brass instruments in Mozart's time were very crude. Even by example, the trombones were, the slides were crude, but they worked. We could play chromatically. Obviously, the horns and trumpets could not. Mm-hmm. So we entrusted all of the, the chromatic uh, reinforcement of the choral works to the trombone section because we could. Mm-hmm. And when you play through that repertoire, the parts are they're incredible. They're incredibly, they can be really busy, they can be really, um, they can be linear, they can be really angular, they can be everything. Mm-hmm. Because you're providing, we actually get to play the melody, I guess that's the other thing I'm getting <laughs> to, which we, which we don't all the time. Uh, and, and it's just a thrill to play and kind of feel like you're keeping the, mm-hmm. the choral forces at least in the, in the right Pitch frame, if you will. See, you know, I, I've had <clears throat> students tell me, "Oh, why do I? Don't, I don't want to play Beethoven. I don't want to play Mozart. You know, it's just the same thing over and over and over." Well, and for tr- for trumpet players, you know, sometimes we're just glorified timpani players. Right, five one, one five one, five one, yeah. occasional. Uh, but um, I said, "Yeah, but the challenge is being able to do it the right style, note after note mm-hmm. after note." I said, "I think the the classical repertoire, early Romantic, is really difficult for that." For that reason, and you know, it is, yes. and, and you talk about, and I wish there could be video with this because as you were started talking about these pieces, I mean, you lit up, <laughs> you know, and it, it, it's kind of cool to see, you know, I mean, we do, we still get such joy after all these years we're playing. I mean, to, yeah. to know that we still get such joy out of playing this repertoire, uh, it, it's pretty cool, you know, and chasing, the, we don't get that high, you know, uh, every single concert, but it, it happens enough, right, that it keeps us going. Oh, absolutely. Um, oh, so my gosh. Totally. Are, are, are there pieces that uh, you'd be happy to never play again? Oh, I, I don't ever look at it that way. Or, some, or, some of them are extraordinarily challenging, like from a, a rhythmic perspective, and, they, and when you're playing it, they don't seem like they have, the parts don't seem like they have value, musical value, like things that we love to play. And whether they do or not, it's just another. It's a challenge. Um, yeah, I think there's bad. I think there's bad writing. I do. But on the other hand, someone needs to discover it's not great, mm-hmm. and then it'll get relegated to somebody's shelf. Mm-hmm. But I don't mind the challenge of it mm-hmm. uh, because every once in a while something comes out that really surprises you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a we did a, a couple. Oh my gosh! What was the we did a piece by was it Connaisson last year? A French composer, still living, and I looked at my part and I thought, oh, this is going to be horrifying to play, all these little sextuplets and triplets and, mm-hmm. and you know, quad rhythms, duple rhythms on top of all this stuff. It was very difficult to just figure out how they fit together, um, but doable, mm-hmm. but still doable. Mm-hmm. And then when we we played the piece. I was just fascinated by the whole thing, and, and there was a sense of melody that we couldn't we couldn't appreciate just by looking at our mm-hmm. part because we weren't really part of that. Right. It, was, it was more of a rhythmic uh, soundtrack that added different timbres to the melody as it was going through. Mm-hmm. But the end result was actually uh, quite beautiful, mm-hmm. and it was again totally not on my radar screen. Didn't mm-hmm. didn't get any of it until the first performance. I thought. Hey, I like this. I can't wait till tomorrow because mm-hmm. I think I learned I learned enough about it during the week that I could start to enjoy it a little bit, mm-hmm. and I wasn't counting with all my fingers and all my toes <laughs> to figure out where the heck I was supposed to be. Right? right. And and sometimes that's just it's just a challenge of the repertoire. Sometimes you have to. I can't really pay attention to the beauty because if I miss this entrance, I'm toast. Sure. Those things come with time. I mm-hmm. think. And for me, when I'm learning something, I just have to be really careful. I'll tell you one of the things that I've learned <clears throat> that's been um, fascinating to learn about myself over over the last 35, 36 years. <clears throat> this is a this is a short story, but I, I love telling the story. We were um, oh three or four months ago, we were playing something we've played a million times, mm-hmm. Tchaikovsky something, whatever, it doesn't matter. And um, Ryan Miller's been playing second next to me mm-hmm. for most of the season. 
and we we played it was a rehearsal we played something and we put put our horns down after this particular passage and he he kind of looked at me and I kind of looked at him and I'm like he said um you know what happened there and I'm like no what he said you know you were playing the second trombone part <laughs> seriously <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm looking at the first trombone part and I'm playing. But if you play something long enough, I mean, I'm literally playing the other part while I'm staring at the other notes, and I'm like, "Oh yeah, sorry." <laughs> and I've learned this about myself that you know you can. There are a lot of pieces that I can actually play without the music, mm -hmm. because I'm I've moved my focus away from the page, mm -hmm. and it's a lot farther out, and I'm really I'm really enjoying what everybody's doing. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you. Still have to pay attention to what's on oh, the, that's the, funny. the page, and I and I, I figure that oh my gosh, I learned all this these parts years ago, but I really need to stay focused because yeah. I may just revert back to what I was been doing for the past thirty <laughs> years. So uh, that that was kind of a fun moment, but yeah. I learned something about myself. So, so I feel like I'm. Some days I feel like I'm really counting on pins and needles to make sure that I, I'm actually playing the right part. <laughs> But it's it's fun though, it yeah. really is. So, all this playing you've done, uh, when when did you start teaching, or when did the interest come in that you wanted to? Was it what what was the opportunity? And like a lot sure. of us, probably it was just, man, I need to do some lessons because I got to make some money. Yeah, I, after I moved here um, and to Indianapolis. Um, Especially with the orchestra schedule, I feel like I felt like I had a lot of free time because I, I was not in personnel. I was just playing the orchestra, and um, I had asked. If, I, 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 it actually might have been Jim. I, my, I think I probably asked him. I said so, because he always had an, a robust uh, studio, not only at DePaul but also he had a private uh, lesson studio. I said so. What, what, what would be a good? How could I get some students or whatever? Mm -hmm. Because I, th I think I'd like to try that out. And he said, well. Why don't you, uh, you know, you could put a little thing on the bulletin board at work. Or he said, you know, maybe a great idea would be to contact some of the band directors in the, in the area. Because mm -hmm. they're always looking for teachers mm -hmm. to work with their students, regardless of their, what level they are or what band or orchestra they're in. And I thought, oh, that's, that is a pretty cool idea. And uh, I remember I had contacted a few people. But one of the guys that I contacted really early on was... Uh, fellow named Don Lane, mm. who mm -hmm. was, uh, he was over at, uh, was it Lawrence North? Yeah, uh, but he was in the North Central program recently, right? Um, I'm not sure exactly, when I knew him, he was always over in Lawrence. Oh, okay. And um, I remember sending him, I think I probably, you know, I actually probably sent him a letter mm -hmm. before we had email and all the other junk. And uh, I was kind of surprised because he, uh, he shot me back a reply like within a week, and I was like, "Wow!" He goes, "Hey, come come on over. Let's talk. I'd love to have you come over and mm -hmm, work mm -hmm. with the kids." And and uh, so he was like super gung ho about it. And I thought, "Hey, this is a this sounds great. I can go over to the school once or twice a week." And mm -hmm. you know, he's got, "Hey, I've got 15 kids that need lessons every week," and I'm like, "I thought that's a great opportunity." Mm -hmm. So I started doing that, and uh, I was having a blast. You know, some of the kids are just fantastic. Some are mm -hmm. just okay, and mm -hmm. some of them don't show up once in a while. But you kind of get in the groove, and you sure. figure out what you're doing. And uh, after that, you know, every once in a while, someone would ask me if, if I taught lessons, and, and so then I would I would try to have anywhere from five to ten kids a week, mm -hmm. just private, and mm -hmm. then and then do stuff for the schools. And that's kind of how I got started, and um, it just kind of snowballed from there. Mm -hmm. But with our schedule in the orchestra, I can't really have that many. Sure. You get to the point where you actually have to stop for five minutes and right. practice and eat lunch. You enjoy teaching, though. I love it. I lo the thing that I love about it the most is it's, for me, it's like a puzzle. <clears throat> a good, a good uh, teacher, professor, in my opinion, tries to figure out where each student is coming from. And then you try to devise some kind of plan that will allow them to then excel at whatever task we're asking them mm -hmm. to do. And mm -hmm. that's the unique thing about uh, teaching, whether you're adjunct or full-time, it doesn't matter, but you're, when you're teaching applied lessons, it's a one-on-one -on -one environment. 
and I've always been about trying to meet uh, the students where they are mm -hmm. because you can't change where they are. Mm -hmm. They are where they are, and it, the reasons don't matter. Either you accept the challenge or you don't. Uh, and some kids are, they seem like they're woefully behind when you look at some of their other colleagues, but they're here, or they're, you know, a private person coming, and it's like, I've never had a trombone lesson in my life, and I'm 17. <laughs> okay. Either you accept it or you don't. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we know, some of them respond really well, and some of them don't respond quite as well, and they mm -hmm. may need some other motivation, or they may, in some cases, they may need to even think about why I'm playing this instrument. Right. And you get everything. And that's the challenge I like. Uh, I'm kind of, I, I like to be a technician on the instrument. I like to share, I'll share everything I know about my instrument mm -hmm. with anybody that wants to ask me. No, I won't hold, I'm not going to hold anything back. It won't do me any good when I'm gone. Let's let somebody else do something with it. Because mm -hmm. <clears throat> I'm sure there's a lot of people that can actually uh, go and do what I'm doing at whatever level I'm playing at, or it's, it's likely that someone will do it better. So Or differently. Or differently, and I, I'd like to be able to experience that sometime. Because mm -hmm. you know what? Part of the fun thing about it being a performer is going, hearing other people play, and then coming away with like, whoa. That was really something. I want to be able to figure out how to do that. See, this is why I enjoy YouTube so much because, you know, it's an infinite, it seems like an infinite resource. Yes. Uh, and there are so many great players on there now. And I feel, you know, and I tell my students openly, uh, look, I feel like I'm learning something new every time I go there. I get energized to try new repertoire. I get yep. energized to try new techniques, extended techniques. Uh, you know, I, I get... Uh, energized by watching some 18-year-old uh, post a video of them just shredding something that I've never been able to yeah. to get close to, you know, and, and they're like, well, didn't that get you down? I'm like, are you kidding? That just inspires me to to go hit it a little bit harder yeah, the next I time. Yeah, I want to work you know? on that. I do. Yeah. And I have to say that it's this is a fascinating time to be uh, alive and working in, in the, we'll just say, we'll just, let's call it the entertainment business, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of people that, that uh, do what we do, and when you can put something on YouTube or put it out there for people to see, it's an incredible resource that, you know, 40 years ago, we didn't have any of that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we didn't have any well, You don't have to go 40 <clears throat> years ago. You can, what, you can go 20 years ago, or even yeah, less than that, really. That's, that's really true, and and the other thing I love to say is, okay, so we're going to we're gonna work on the Rimsky-Korsakoff trombone concerto. Go on, just go on to YouTube and Pick at least one, but why don't you pick two or three and listen yeah. to all of them? And then when you come back and we start working on the, this piece, tell me what you liked about these particular people. Mm -hmm. that, and share with, you know, who was the soloist on this particular mm -hmm. thing? And we can just get it up on our phone and we can say, go to the scroll to the second movement. Let's let's see what he did here in the 6-8 section. This was brilliant. I love mm -hmm. this. Uh, and when you can look and analyze and talk about people that are doing these things and use that as a, as a resource and an example, it doesn't get better than that. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that they, that not only do I learn, but I'm hoping that they will learn and or consider is you don't have to do it my way. My way is just a way. <laughs> it's just a way. <clears throat> There's a zillion ways to do it. Yeah. Please try them all. Yeah. Try as many as you want, but, yeah. but find something that resonates with you yeah. and, and get on with it. You know, I've seen and heard you teach because I walk by your uh, your door oh, while yeah. you're, you're teaching and sure. I'm on my way in or out. And uh, you model a lot for your students and you play a lot with your students. Mm -hmm, I do. And, and I'm a big fan of that. I think, yep. you know, that's that's how we learn to speak. Uh, that's how we learned. Uh, so why not do music the same way? Have exactly. it modeled by somebody. Exactly. Let me show you how that phrase is supposed to turn. Yeah. Let me show you how. And... Uh, was it always that way in your teaching? Do you recall? Yeah, I like to play. I just do, and and the emphasis is always on, hey, this is how this is one of the ways that I learned to play this. You can use it as a place to start, mm -hmm. but be flexible. Try to learn different ways of doing something, because honestly, whether you're working on a particular phrase or a, an entire movement of something, part of the mastery on your instrument is. There's a lot of muscle memory that's going on. If you can deconstruct phrases, put them back together in different ways, it's the same notes, but you're actually learning a different way 
to express yourself. Mm-hmm. The more ways you can do it, it's just it, it adds to your confidence level, and it it allows you to branch out and take a risk that you mm-hmm. might not have thought about. This is the thing that I that I discuss. I mean, phrasing is kind of my has been my buzzword for about about fifteen years, mm-hmm. um, and I like to say, okay, look. The beautiful thing about music is there's no, it's not a math problem. There's no right answer. There's a lot of answers. And part of the answer is how are you going to sell it? Be convincing. Be convincing. Yeah. Make a statement with what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And if it's different than the way I did it and I enjoyed it, hallelujah. That's <laughs> awesome. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, if you don't ever, if you never practice doing that kind of, phrase making or music making you'll never do it in a performance mm-hmm. because you won't be comfortable doing it mm-hmm. you can do anything you want in a practice room it seems to be the one of the most difficult things to get a student to do is is to become vulnerable vulnerable enough to really try mm-hmm. that sort of thing it's very safe to just play the notes and the rhythms and the articulations exactly as they are on the page yes right it's safe <laughs> yes it's very safe it's very safe yeah. and um I have to say the other thing that, that I try to emphasize is the metronome is a tool. Use it as a tool, not a crutch. Mm-hmm. You know, when somebody says, boy, your rhythm is just, it's awesome. It's, it's just, it's, you're on the click. You're just like, you're nailing it. I'm like, okay, congratulations. The musical <laughs> value was about zero. But at least you can play with the metronome. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not, I don't want to degrade the metronome into making it sound like it's a, not a valuable tool. Because it really is a valuable tool, but once you have assimilated the sense of rhythm and the pulse mm-hmm. that a phrase or a piece is trying to display, there's another level or two above that that you need mm-hmm. to get comfortable. You need to assimilate that mm-hmm. into your DNA, and then you need to put it on display. Well, it comes down to the way we pace our own speech. We're not this monotone. Mm-hmm. Uh, chugging along, you know, to the beat, just in a pattern. I mean, there's such inflection. Even here, I was trying to talk without being <laughs> too conscious of it, you know. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I, I think if we if we compare it again to speech, the way we communicate with each other verbally, right. uh, that musical phrasing would come much more easily. Yeah. So One of the things that um, I don't have a lot of, uh, or at least I don't think I do, Maybe I do, but maybe I, maybe I just I, I minimize it. But one of the things that I've always had as a if it was a bucket list thing, because I don't have a big bucket, but um, one of the things I've always wanted to do, and I haven't done it yet, I'm going to try to get to this at some point. I would love to go to a place with my horn, let's just say France, for example, and study with uh, native French mm-hmm. trombone players that are completely flexible in phrasing and their really only concern is the fact that you're making music hmm. and just kind of start from there because I feel like I've had lots of experience at most everything else but this is if I had to say what's new in my uh, career in the last 35 years it would be this mm-hmm. and I'd love to I'd love to experience how people that are culturally <clears throat> disposed to this kind of thinking, how they apply it to their playing. Mm-hmm. It would be really a genuine thrill to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'll ever get to it, but I hope I, I hope I do. Well, I, even just to be there and kind of immerse yourself in that culture and see how they they approach music, yeah. uh, not just on trombone, right? Not just no, on trumpet no, for me, anything. but just anything. Uh, yeah, anything. Yeah. Want... Uh, yeah, the sense of history. You know, I think to be able to be in Austria and oh, and. Yeah. Uh, and think about Mozart and Beethoven and uh, oh, it's crazy. from from that perspective. It's so. crazy, man. I I don't want to stop. I mean, I feel like we're we've been on a good roll here, but uh, I really appreciate the time today. And you know, I think uh, I've learned a lot about you. Um, most of it was interesting. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, you know, I always enjoy uh, opportunities to to work with you and yet here at UND. Uh, with the brass quintet and uh, any other time it's been a lot of fun so thanks for sharing everything today i really appreciate it thank you and, uh, oh you're welcome and uh, see you on the flip side sounds good 
Thank you again for listening to today's interview. I hope you enjoyed your time here, and please come back for more interviews. Be sure to share the news of this podcast with friends and colleagues and give me a rating on whatever platform you get your podcast from. Thanks again to Messina Covers for co-sponsoring this podcast. Don't forget that you too can be a supporter. Check out how at www.patreon.com slash studio HFL. And one more reminder that you can sign up to receive news via email regarding new episodes, merchandise, and more by going to palmusic.net and clicking on the subscribe to newsletter link. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you come back for more great interviews.